1883, a painter by the name, well, just an artist in general, Jean-Georges Weber, uh, he debuted this painting called The Missionary's Adventures. And just to take a look at this. What do, you, what do you notice about this? If you're like me and you know little to nothing about art, then hopefully your eyes do what mine did. And I think it's what Weber's intention was, but I don't know because I know little to nothing about art. But I think his intention was that our eyes would track with the lighting of the work itself. And if what you do is, is as you start to track with the lighting of this work, what you'll notice is that it invites you into this unfolding scene. And, and just, just take for a moment and notice the grandeur of the room, just the, like the textures and the colors and the engravings, the rugs, just all of those little details. And now shift your attention to the, to the people, the characters in the scene, the subjects of the painting. Notice, uh, notice their posture. This is the posture that most of you take about 25 minutes into a teaching, just very relaxed. <laughs> notice their, their garb. They're just G'd up from the feet up. I mean, so, so what, what you have here is in Verbeer's day, these men, the, the, one in, the ones in red, those are the cardinals, and this gentleman here in the purple who's being entertained by the small dog, uh, that's the bishop. And these men in Verbeer's day, they hold disproportionate power in the life of the church to change what's happening. And yet here they are, sedated by luxury, laughing and lounging. If you look at the tea table, there's a little decanter there. It's probably hard to see in the lighting, but I'm guessing it's like a decanter of brandy. And in this, in this guy's hand is a glass, just midday, just doing some, some day drinking with the boys. See, on the whole, this scene is dripping with irony and, uh, because here in the middle of it, we have this lowly monk who's pointing out this wound. This is, remember the title, this is The Missionary's Adventures. So you have this lowly monk pointing out this wound that he's been inflicted in his desire to share the love of Christ, contrasted with church clerics who are lounging on couches, sipping tea and laughing. But the greater irony is the, the, the clergy's ignorance because they have forgotten the heritage of their faith. And you go, well, how, how do you conclude that from a painting? Well, there's, this painting is kind of meta because there's a painting within the painting. Hanging above the couch is another painting. This is formerly known as the martyrdom of St. Bartholomew, but this is like on the streets, this is called the flaying of Bartholomew. And it's this picture, you could Google it later, please later, uh, and what you'll see is it's this really intense stare of Bartholomew, and there's this executioner who's giving pause, and Bartholomew's face is radiant. It's this, this image of hope. It's this picture of resilience in the face of persecution, and now that picture of persecution is irrelevant to everyone in this scene except for the lowly monk. There's perseverance and faithfulness, integrity. All of these things are drained of their value and power in the lap of luxury. They're nothing more than a nicely framed image from times long past. 
And sadly, this painting is as cutting today as it was almost 140 years ago. Uh, And for similar reasons, the church of our day is hemorrhaging a generation. She is capitulated to the power structures of our day. She's gotten in bed with politics. She has believed the ideological scripts of the left and the right. Instead of hearing, receiving, and responding to Jesus' call to faith, hope, and love, that holy triumvirate at the core of the Christian faith. See, the controversy of the church is alive and well. So what do we do? And in many respects, this is the driving question that we'll be exploring over these coming weeks as we enter into this controversial church series. It's it's this, it's what does a community hopeful to practice the way of Jesus, what does that type of community do in the face of controversy? And and there is a ton of nuance to be had in response to a question like that, but just to, to get us through this time, there are a couple broad responses. First, you could depart. You could just depart, like dip out from the controversy, leave all together. And we'll say more about this idea of departure in the coming weeks when we talk about deconstruction and how there's actually a gift and a benefit to deconstructing harmful things. But for now, you could just leave. You could become an ex-evangelical or deconvert or something like that. But to my mind, this is a little color commentary, the healing that we desire is not to be found outside of the church. It's actually to be found inside the loving embrace of a community practicing the way of Jesus. And I understand that that can be a difficult place to to find even here. Like we are laboring to become those type of people, not assuming that we are that already. But but that's commentary for later. So one option in, in response to what do we do is you could depart. On the other hand, if we don't cut ties, You could just sift and sort according to your preferences. You could sift and sort according to your preferences alone. Like this basically means take the bits that I like about church or churchianity and then discard the bits that I don't like, the things that are frustrating and or controversial. And if we're honest, we all do this, myself included. It's just we do it to varying degrees and with varying degrees of self-awareness. See, the risk that's inherent in church participation that is driven by preference alone, and hear this, that, you know, this is the preaching I like, or that's the worship I like. It got me so hyped. It was like that concert I went to that one time. Or here is the, the, the social issues that are relevant to my identity as I find it, or the community that fits my season of life. Like the, the challenge in this type of community curation is the deficit that it's likely to create in your life with God. And that might sound like a, like a pretty weighty statement, like preferences to deficit in your life with God. So, so let me just lean on this for a moment. Um, this is what I mean. Preferences are essentially about ranking, ranking one thing over and against another. And preferences are shaped by our environment. There's a whole constellation of things that shape and form our preferences. They're structural, they're relational, they're emotional. It's a whole constellation of things that are shaping our preferences. And if we sift and sort in the life of a church according to our preferences alone, our preferences become these boundary markers that in some sense we we set up to protect. And in some sense it is like we've been harmed and so we set it up for a good reason, but then we leave it there, and that self-protection becomes a barricade for the activity of God's life in us. Tim Keller puts it this way when he thinks about through this, or thinks through this. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And we'll break this down a bit more when we talk about the idolatry of ideology. That, that'll be a fun teaching. 
Um, but I really appreciate how Anne Lamont, she's a spiritual writer, if you're unfamiliar with her, she, she fills out this thought. She says it this way, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Thanks for that, Anne. A little sobering. See, just to, to be crystal clear, preferences are not evil. We all carry them. They're quite natural. But when we sift and sort according to our preferences alone, they restrain us rather than free us. So again, what shall we do in the face of controversy? Well, rather than depart or sift and sort according to our preferences alone, perhaps there is a third way. Like, why not stay and examine our preferences? Why not be curious about the conclusions that we've drawn? Maybe we're wrong. You know, most of the time I'm up here, I'm, I'm like, I think, I think I have an understanding of this, but probably 80% of the time I don't. So just, you know, a word of confidence from the front here. See, what, what if, what if we humbled ourselves like that lowly monk and we entered into controversy head on? What if the church, what if this church could be the type of place where we entered into controversy with grace and mercy and humility in hand? That would seem like an entirely different ecosystem that could cultivate new life. That sounds like a, a beautiful place. What if we could be like that monk that is like alive to the light and love of God amid the controversy? Well, then we might just be a community where love resides. That's just a radical idea that the church of Jesus could be a place where love resides. And there's, but there's a tension here because when we, examine our contra- or when we examine our preferences, what it does is it flips the camera around and all of a sudden, have you ever, you've seen this before, you've seen somebody doing a selfie and all of a sudden they're like, oh, good Lord, and they're like fixing their hair or their shirt or something. This is in some small sense what happens when we flip the camera and we examine our preferences. It can elicit conflict. We can notice that something is disheveled in our inner woman or our inner man. And I love how the Apostle John, he, he reminds us that when we examine ourselves, there's something that can say this is true. That is, this corresponds to reality. And the truest thing about followers of Jesus is, is their love. It says, you'll know this type of community by their love, that they give away their preferences for the good of their community. And you see, you can agree or disagree with me on this, but I've found that I actually need to be around people who annoy me, people who you know, think differently, act differently, vote differently than me, and stay with me, lest you take that last statement personally. Um, See, the Apostle John, again, he, he's saying that love will be the thing that tells the story of our allegiance to Jesus. Therefore, a community of love requires others. And this is not like a homogenous group of others. This is a group of difference. E-N-T-S, not E-N-C-E, difference. And if that feels odd, just, just get this little sampling of Jesus in the Gospels. Like, behold the son of the living God washing the feet of his followers, modeling service. But behold the son of God exercising patience as his closest friends and disciples like reject him and rebuke him publicly. Behold the son of God concerned about the one who's gone rogue is willing to leave the whole crew behind to go in search of the one. 
Behold the Son of God willing to forgive his enemies. Do you remember that line of Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like behold the way of love. A community of love requires others. In other words, the way of Jesus will always drive us beyond ourselves. It will drive us beyond our preferences. And it'll drive us into the heart of the church where love can reside. And I just, I hope that we have this like dogged conviction that love, that Jesus is actually interesting in raising love up in a community like this, which means that we will likely annoy one another at any given point. And you're like, Kyle, I've been here for about a year now. I, trust me, I have been annoyed. I get this. See, what if the people who annoy us are actually gifts given by God to confront our preferences? Have you ever thought about that? Just like changes your mindset. Think about your closest friend. You know that one thing, that little, like when you first became friends with them, it was like a cute little peccadillo. It was, it was endearing. You're like, oh yeah, they like flick their hair that way or they're, you know, just digging for a little bug right there at the tip. But now you're like, if you touch your nose one more time, I'm like th- those little things, what if those are gifts to cultivate the character of Jesus in us? And I don't, maybe this seems foolish to you, you know, like d- beholding Jesus, serving patience, forgiveness, but what's often foolish in the ways of the world, it is faithfulness in the eyes of the Lord. This is our aim faithfulness in the eyes of Jesus. And so over the coming weeks, as we talk about things like sexual formation, we're going to do that in the latter half. As we talk about political ideology and power and gender roles in the life of the church, violence in the Bible. By the way, these are the things you wanted to talk about. You all emailed in and said, these are the things we want to talk about. So if you're like, hey, I didn't like that teaching, well, then we can just talk about it after that because maybe we can learn some stuff. But as we talk about those things in the coming week, our goal is not to be taken in by the controversies. Our hope is instead that like a monk among clerics, we might stand as like this contrast in the midst of that, that, that we might be this alternative way in the face of controversy, that we might behold the beauty and love of God on offer in Jesus. So with that in mind, I really have two simple goals for the remainder of our time today. I'm going to try and keep it short, but Lord knows that's not my gifting. Um, So I have some some scaffolding for these thoughts. Uh, Two things for the remainder of our time. Uh, First is I want to build out somewhat of a shared language as we think about the cultural moment that we inhabit, basically the time we live in. And then second, I I want us to do our best to behold Jesus amid controversy. Believe it or not, whether, I don't know if you've read the scriptures of the Gospels recently, but if you open up the Gospels, the Gospel for John, for example, you will find Jesus getting into these little verbal spats and skirmishes, people trying to kill him. There is controversy with Jesus. So we're going to take a moment to look at that. So first, shared language. Second, we're going to close with Jesus and some controversy. How's that sound? Okay, I'm going to offer a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll talk about this cultural moment. Uh, Father, we thank you that... Um, that you, because you have first loved us, that we can in turn love. And this morning as we were praying, it was just, um, it, it was said that we need you to worship you. We actually need you, Jesus, through your abiding presence to draw us into the life of God. And that is peculiar and frustrating at times. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, would you stand in my body? Would you think with my mind? Would you speak with my mouth? And then f- for all of us here, would you, through your living word, would you confront the areas in our hearts 
not, not in the, the typical manner of confrontation we're accustomed to that is combative, but would you confront our heart with grace? That is, would you draw us into this place of love and refreshment? Would you rem- remind us that you come to us today as those on whom you say, look, I, I love you. I want to be near you. I want to know you. And so as we think about these things, would you refresh our hearts and stir our affections for you, Jesus? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what, what is this cultural moment? If you're taking notes, you can uh, ask yourself that question. Uh, and so this is how I got at answering this question. A, a few months before the pandemic hit, this is December 2018 to February of 2019, this uh, study, this pretty comprehensive study was done, and it was done across 25 countries, 15,000 participants, primarily millennials and Gen Z. So a pretty comprehensive study. And what uh, the opening title of this uh, study is called Life in the Anxious Age. So what is this cultural moment? Those words stand out. I don't think I have to like roll through a bunch of data on anxiety in 2022 to convince anybody that this, that's like a fitting title. In many ways, that title of that study carried this kind of prophetic weight. It extends far beyond the scope of the study itself because in just a few months, like they had no idea in February what was about to unfold. In just a few months, what you would see is there would be this dramatic shift in the emotional landscape of our lives. There would be a global pandemic that we didn't know what it would be or entail. That comes upon us. There's racial unrest. There is all of a sudden economic fallout and consequences. There's, you know, do you remember that contentious presidential election? And then shortly thereafter, you remember that little incident at the Capitol? That was just like 2020 and 2021, like just the start of it. So that's just to name a few things. Suffice it to say that lives that were previously fraught with some uncertainty, like some stuff happened and brought that all to the surface. And to be sure, I'm not like a clinician, so uh, again, 85% of the time, just like double check on this stuff. But um, anxiety is complex. It is both natural and it is clinical. That it, it can be acute and neurobiological and disabling, and it can just be general and frustrating. And that is the tone that we're living in, the, the, the life in the anxious age. And, and whether it is natural or it is something that is this clinical, there's this sense that comes through in a life in the age of anxiety, and it, it's this idea of uncertainty. Uncertainty about our story. Uncertainty about our identity. Uncertainty about our future. What is it going to be? And there's this pastor and cultural analyst, his name's Mark Sayers. He has this uh, recent work called a Non-Anxious Presence. And it's based on this work by Edwin Friedman on a book under the same title of Non-Anxious Presence. Or, and Sayers is, is riffing on what does it mean to be a type of people who could enter into a, like this sea of anxiety with peace and calm. And so to get at this, he, he builds out this framework that he borrows from military strategists called the gray zone. And I'm, I'm going to talk about the gray zone as we kind of get at some shared language for a moment. So let me just break this down. Uh, prior to the 21st century, 
warfare was more or less simple. Again, I know, tons of like nuance when you talk about warfare and who is a pacifist to talk about warfare anyways. So we'll just stay with me here. Uh, as time and technology advanced, the way that you needed to talk about warfare evolved. So all of a sudden you have this stuff called kinetic warfare. Well, what is kinetic warfare? Kinetic warfare is when people are actually engaging in sort of combat, where there is like munitions fired, there's physical altercations, but that's not all. There's smaller units. You, you see, it's not just tangible force, there's cyber warfare, and there's legal warfare, and there's economic warfare. And and what happens is, as it, warfare gets more granular is it's really difficult to discern when a conflict starts and when a conflict ends. So let's just think about Ukraine for a moment. In 2014, there was some stuff that popped off. And all of a sudden, a whole region is like by referendum, Russia or something. And then, all, and then like we get from 2014 to 2022, when did the conflict start? And then let's talk about NATO. And NATO at the end of World War II said it would not advance any further than a given point, which is like right through the middle of Germany. And yet like NATO continues to advance. So what's going on? Like this is complex scenario. When did the conflict start and when did it end? And then there's like a billion different responses. So the point that Sayers is making is that it's difficult to know when one thing ends and another begins. And for our, for our case here, it's like anxiety is still lingering in the air. And there's something emerging. There's some sense of normalcy that's starting to take place. I mean, um, there are festivals and there are shows. Like downtown, is, you'll like be driving on the weekend and all of a sudden you're like, oh no, I can't get to where I need to go. This is frustrating. Normalcy is emerging, but you'll also see that there's still this anxiety lingering in the air. This is a moment that's held in tension by two realities. This is the gray zone. And at one level, this means that this season is more complex and tenuous than the seasons that came before it, but, and that can be a little daunting, but it also means that there's something unique about this moment because there are these distinct pressures that happen in this type of season. And those pressures have a way of pushing all of the stuff that we've been ignoring to the surface. It has a way of drawing stuff forward to refine and reform us. Just take evangelicalism, for example. 2022 has, has been a, um, an interesting year to be a follower of Jesus. For me, you know, like getting, getting to pastor in a local church, it's like a, a number of the conversations that I get to have now are about legitimate controversies that have risen up. Mismanagement of money, like the abuse of people. I mean intense traumas coming to the surface. And in many ways, evangelicalism has fallen prey to this appetite for power. But earlier in this year, there was this podcast that was re released by Christianity Today. I mean, it goes by the name, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And essentially, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, it challenged toxic leadership structures that are choking the life out of the church. And what was so curious is rather than a bunch of backlash and dismissal of the podcast, what it did is there was this kind of reckoning that came forth, like this chorus of reckoning that was like, oh my goodness, we are susceptible to this as well. It was fascinating to not just witness, but to participate. And if you don't know what that podcast was, it's essentially um, long-form journalism, 
podcast style about a church, its emergence, its explosive growth, and then its uh, dissolution, this mega church out in Seattle, Washington. But it wasn't this podcast alone. You see, there were books that came out in the past couple of years, Jesus and John Wayne, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. By the way, if, if you want to know something about evangelicalism, read those two books and you will have, like, I think the eyes of your heart enlightened. Like, it's just, it's remarkable. But it wasn't just one podcast that all of a sudden broke loose the soil of our hard hearts. No, it was like this constellation of things. And it opened the door to these challenges that were there the whole time. But what was so interesting to me is that those three specific things, you know, the making of biblical womanhood, Jesus and John Wayne, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, they did it with humility. It wasn't bashing or combative or coercive. It was, it was like the opposite spirit that they moved in. And Sayers, he puts it this way when he thinks about this because he, he's talking about the anxiety has not gone away yet and something is shifting. And he says this, he says, moments like these gray zone moments are seeded, seeded with potential for renewal. See, what if God is like breaking up the soil of our hearts so that an age of anxiety could be seeded with hope? And what if you're here today because like the anxiety that you feel, the living God is saying, I have something more for you. And if that sounds implausible because you're like, certainly the living God does not speak today. He wrote it down in the scriptures that settles it. Well, maybe this is like a wake up call to something different. What if this cultural moment is but a moment seeded with hope in the unexpected places? You see, curiously enough, what Sayers is calling the gray zone, this kind of in-between time, the scriptures have something to say about in-between times as well. If you go through and you start to read through the Old Testament, what you'll find is that there's this, this theme of exile that emerges. See, what, what Sayers is calling the gray zone, the biblical authors simply call exile. It's this time between times where you are not where you hoped to be. And what's so curious is like the people of God, Israel, they were supposed, they were supposed to cultivate this national life of justice and care for the poor and for the orphan and the widow. And, and God chose these people to receive his love, to radiate his love beyond themselves to the nations. It was like God's love would envelop all of creation. This is who Israel would be, but they sought power, they sought safety, they sought control. And in those places, what they found is that they were absent of the living God whose name they claimed. They regarded themselves as God's favorites. And they looked with disdain on anybody outside their camp. And what they realized is soon enough, they had been divorced from the love of God that had met them. And they were in exile. And they were starting to become more and more like the nations that they have disregarded. And what's so curious is that in that place, there's a reckoning that happens. In their exile, they wake up to God's call to faithfulness. So what if God is inviting us to reckon with our own type of exile? It's just curiosity. This brings us to Jesus amid controversy. And to see this, just uh, turn back to our teaching text with me. This is John chapter 5. For a little context, Jesus is coming up to the holy city. That's this, the city of Jerusalem. And he's coming up for a festival. And he's coming in on the Sabbath. Now, John's going to make it really clear that Jesus is there on the Sabbath. He's going to keep telling us it's the Sabbath. There's a reason for that. But Jesus goes to this place. It's um, this uh, 
colonnade that covers this pool, and there's some mystical healing that's associated with this. Apparently, there would be an angel, like a messenger of Yahweh, that would come and dip their finger in the pool, kind of swirl it around, and then there'd be like some angel residue in the waters. And so if you were able to get down fast, you could get that residue on your body and it would result in some healing. So this is the word on the street. This is like the folklore of the day. They're sitting there waiting for healing. This is the place that Jesus rolls up. And this is what we read in verse six. When Jesus saw him, just stop right there. Remember who the him is. This is a man who's been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, It's festival season, the place is crowded. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? This man's laying there for 38 years and who knows how long he's lingered by those waters, who knows how long he's been hopeful to get into that place, but everything about his condition, he's disabled. Everything about his position, his proximity to the water signals that this guy is the type of guy who's open for some healing. He's saying, I'm, he, I'm at the place, the angel, you know, like I want some of that angel residue, that angel dust up on, like let's get this. And Jesus comes up to him and asks him, do you want to get well? Like do you perceive the invitation in front of you? And I think it would be silly to think Jesus didn't know whether or not this man wanted to be healed. Like of course he knows. But listen to this response of this man in verse seven. He said, sir, I have no one to help me to get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And and there's a lot going on there, but what I want us to hear is Jesus' response to this guy. Do you want to get well? A roundabout way that says, yeah, I'm trying. And then Jesus said to him in verse eight, get up pick up your mat and walk. And look at verse nine, at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. So this is such a strange passage. These are the things that kind of bewilder our imaginations when we're reading through the scriptures in 2022. We're like, hold on a second, Jesus just comes, enters a crowd, sees this man, learns about him, goes over to him, says, pick up your stuff, and then he's healed. Like, who is this man who can go up to somebody who's an invalid for 38 years and say, pick up your gear, roll, like it's time to be healed. So facts on the ground, Jesus comes to town on a Sabbath. He heals a guy, says, get up, and the guy walks away. Simple evaluation here, folks. Uh, Thumbs up or thumbs down for that scene? Okay, I thought that like nonverbal gestures would really give a lane for participation here. But you were like, it's the most tentative thumbs up. I'm like, half a thumb? This is a good scene, folks. We'll just do two thumbs all the way up. But we'll see. Verse 9. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. John telling us it's the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. Like, we know, guys. And the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, to be clear here, the Torah... The, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, do not permit this man from picking up his mat, but their tradition does. So they say, they conflate their tradition with the law of God, and they say, it forbids you. But he replies like this, he said, well, the man who made me well, he said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, well, who is this fellow? Be kind of funny scene to say, who is this fellow who told you to pick up, pick it up and walk? 
And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So to this man's great surprise, Jesus shows up, meets him in his moment of greatest need, and immediately embroils him in conflict. You're an invalid for 38 years. Some fellow just walks up and says, pick up your mat. You're cured. You're like, well, all right. And then the leaders of the day, these people have like, like the clerics of our painting, they have disproportionate power to change the life of the culture. And they come up and they press in on him. He's embroiled in this controversy with the leaders of the day because Jesus' healing was out of bounds according to the customs of the day. And right after this, we're informed that the leaders find out that it's Jesus. And so then they, they start to press on Jesus. The, the scriptures say that they start to persecute Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus responds, and it says that the leaders st start plotting to kill Jesus. See, the notion that the way of Jesus is devoid of conflict that you're going to start following Jesus and that your life will somehow come into focus, like sharp relief from the rest of the, the junk that's mired your life. And you're going to start following Jesus. It's going to be like rainbows and ponies and unicorns and gum. It's just going to be amazing. It's, it's not. Just allow this scene to paint a picture for you for what life with Jesus can be like. You can experience healing and immediately be embroiled in controversy. I know I'm painting a compelling picture for the way of Jesus here this morning. Jesus even goes so far as to say, expect controversy. Later in the gospel, according to John, we'll hear Jesus say things like this. In this world, and by world, Jesus here is talking about this system that is opposed to flourishing according to the way of Yahweh. So the world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the spirit of Jesus essentially saying, move into the conflict because you can have an overcoming spirit therein. And don't get this twisted. I'm not saying like glory in the controversy. I'm not saying seek out the controversy or just say, well, hey, it's tough. This is the way of Jesus. It's gonna be controversial. No, there's something different to be had there. And to my mind, what's taking place in the life of evangelicalism is like the loving justice of God that is exposing abuse and racism and manipulation. It is God's justice to bring this stuff to the surface and show it what it is because it has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. It is a different thing altogether. So there are controversies that need to be exposed because they do not align with the way of Jesus. And then there is life with Jesus. To identify with Jesus as, as like a recipient of his healing love, it can be controversial. And, and in many respects, Jesus is still out of bounds with the cultural customs of our day. I, some of you know this, but for a, a long while, I think before my time at Gateway, but for a long while, people would say, oh, what do you do for a living? Because that's the question we ask of one another. What do you do? That's the opening question. And I would say, oh, you know, I... Um, I work in a nonprofit. Do you know why I would say that? Because I'd be having this conversation with somebody, I don't know, maybe it'd be over a pint or it'd be wherever it would be. It'd be at a party. Oh, I work in a nonprofit. Oh, that's interesting. What kind of nonprofit work do you do? And I'm like, oh, 
And then I would get lost, and I'd be like, I, I'm, I'm a pastor. And I tell you what, any rapport that we had built over the course of that conversation was deflated. I've, well, in part, yes, because it was, it was like, is it, is it the facts on the, is it like really misleading to say I work for a nonprofit? Yes, it is. And is it truthful? Kind of. So here, what's embedded in that? There's this fear that would come that like I did not want to enter into that hard space. And so because I was living out of this fear, instead of saying like, I, and so I, I don't know whatever the point was, but now like being able to say like, no, like this is just, this is what I do. And it's funny to see how people respond. Not laughable funny, not ha-ha, but just interesting. And there's this, there's this different, I don't know, for, for me, this is just anecdotal, but like a different type of spirit can be carried into that of just saying, yeah, this is what I do. And I'm thinking, what if this is a moment that they can reimagine what an interaction with a follower of Jesus is? And I have no control over that. But what I was trying to do before in that spirit of fear was to control the outcome. See, the way of Jesus will have controversy with it. And sometimes the fear that we have that Jesus' way is out of bounds, it provokes this response that's really peculiar. We actually end up responding more like the world around us than the way of Jesus invites us to. Because I think about the age that we live in, like the wisdom of the day says, dig deeper, go inside, really examine, self-actualize. But the biblical witness reminds us that we're not meant to find ourselves. Like, if you're lost, you're not meant to find yourself. If you're lost, you're meant to be found. And that's not a pejorative. Like, to be lost is simply to not know where you're going. Have any of you been in a car with somebody who's lost, but they will not admit it? How frustrating is that? Now, how frustrating is it as you are the person who's, like, desperately wanting to, like, make the signs say, you, like, want relief, See, Jesus actually offers us relief. In the story that we just read, if you go down to verse 14, there's this moment where, where the man is being pressed. He, he says, I don't know who saved me. You know, Jesus slipped into the crowd. He doesn't know. And then the first four words in verse 14 are this. Later, Jesus found him. Just uh, t turn to your neighbor for a moment and say, later, Jesus found him. Now, now turn to your other neighbor and say, later, Jesus found him. This is the movement of Jesus in the world. This is what Jesus is on about consistently in the Gospels, is he's finding the unlikely people. And Jesus, that is who he is and how he operates. The scandal of Jesus is that he will reach into the exile of this moment to draw us in. This is how Jesus moves in the world, to find us and heal us and invite us into a way of love. Like a monk among clerics, Jesus may be wounded and ignored, but his love will not be deterred. And so, I just want to close with these thoughts that I, I think said it better than I could, and they're more concise too. So this is a quote from New Testament scholar Tim Gombas. He kind of pulls all this together and he says this, and this won't be on the screen, so you'll actually have to listen. I'll just suggest to you that this might be a strategic moment for us to embrace our identity as God's wandering people among the nations. It just may be that this emerging moment of cultural weakness is God's gift to his church. What if it's an opportunity for the God revealed in the crucified Jesus to press his people into the shape of the cross? 
What if the Lord of the church is grieved when we strive for power and agitate to control the course of history? See, if anything, over these coming weeks, this is not like a a battle cry for culture war. I'm not interested in being a part of church that wants to be wooed by ideology or, uh, goodness, or luxury, cultivated by like the trappings of of this cultural moment. No, like, I I would guess that you don't want to be a part of a church like that either. Instead, I would imagine that you would want to be a part of a community that's willing with humility and grace in hand to turn the camera backward and to examine what's going on, to take a moment with the grace of Jesus, just to, like, with curiosity in hand, like, withholding judgment, just say, why did I come to that conclusion? Why, why is this so frustrating to hear this particular person say that particular thing? What does the way of Jesus look like in this? And so that's what we're going to do over these coming weeks is we're going we're gonna to digest some things that stand out and are worthy of controversy in some sense. But what we want to do so is with a contrasting spirit, one that invites curiosity.